Well, hey everyone, welcome to episode 267 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. This week on the podcast, I was joined by a photographer and astrophysicist living at the South Pole, Aman Chokshi. This week, we had a special guest host, Rajas Jodhiswaran, who helped to set up this week's episode. So thanks to your help, Rajas. We had a really fun chat learning about what it's like being a photographer out this, at the South Pole and all of the strange oddities that are there for photographers. I hope you enjoy this week's show. Before we get rolling, I have a really awesome list of people that I want to thank for supporting the podcast on Patreon. You all stepped up in a big way last month, and I'm beyond grateful. It really made my day. Thanks to the following people who are now supporting the show financially on Patreon. Bonnie Lampley, Martin Gonzalez, Ben Madlinger, Albert Capizo, Norma Martiri, David Mullen, Jason Pettit, Alberto Rodriguez Garcia, Robert Pennington, Jeffrey Tadlock, Gary Hook, Alexander Morley, Karen Kirkchian, Josh Coots, Daniel Palmeyer, and Stephen Collinson. You are all awesome. Okay, let's get to the show. All right, Aman Chokshi, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, and we're, we're joined today with our first ever co-host uh, who introduced me to you and your work, and that would be my co-founder for the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, uh, Rajesh Jodhiswaran. Thank you for having me here, Matt. This is a unique honor, and uh, actually, I could not miss up this opportunity to be here because I've uh, followed Aman for a few years now, and um, when I found out that he was going to be at the South Fall, it's like one of those few things that are hard to come by. It's almost like talking to a person on a different planet, right? Right. So how many people have, have you known that that are at the bottom of the earth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny. Like, you know, I do a lot of these podcasts. And tonight my I was telling my wife, she's like, you have a podcast? And I'm like, yeah, I have a podcast. And I'm like, it'll be interesting. She's like, why is that? I'm like, because my guest is at the South Pole in Antarctica. And she's like... Whoa, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so. yeah. I, I told my daughter about the same thing, and she actually gave me a question to ask Aman, so I will be asking that later today. Oh, brilliant. Aman, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners about you, who you are, and um, would love to learn uh, more about you just as a person. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Aman. Um, I'm actually a PhD student studying astrophysics. And I've come down to the South Pole to work on the South Pole Telescope. So it's a 10-meter radio telescope, which is looking at the earliest light from the universe. So it's basically scanning up and down the night sky, which is six months long down here, and uh, searching for the first light after the Big Bang. And um, yeah, I came down here mostly because I really love the night skies and photography. And this is such a unique place to be, but the science is extremely exciting too. So it's just like amazing and super weird to be down here. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, where are you originally from? How old are you? Um, You have kids, married, all that fun stuff. Uh, Not married. I'm 28 years old, originally from India. Um, Spent the last couple of years in Melbourne, yeah, I'm from Bangalore, South India. 
Cool. Well, your your English is super awesome. So, yeah, I was expecting you to have a Aussie accent, which uh, surprisingly you don't. You're <laughs> pretty neutral. <laughs> well, let's yeah. uh, let's dive into your let's dive into your photography journey. So, I would love to to hear hear more about your journey there, starting with your trip around India after high school. Yeah. So. I definitely traveled a lot with my family as as a young kid, I guess. We used to go to the Himalayas every year and any holiday we had, we'd get out of the city. Uh, but once I finished high school, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do for my future. And my parents were very laid back. And um, so I just, three days after I finished my final exams, packed two set of clothes a book of maps and hopped on my bike and just took off. And I, I biked around South India for two and a half months. And if I found a place I liked, I would just stay there for a while um, and otherwise kept moving. Uh, condition my parents gave me is that I had 300 rupees, so around $4 a day. And that, that was my budget for these two and a half months. It was pretty easy. I stayed in cheap places, ate, ate on the road with like truckers, um, stay with fishermen, hitchhiked on trucks when my bike broke down. And that, that was my first long solo trip. And it was amazing. And at that time, uh, did you have a camera with you at all? I had my first phone, which had a really crappy camera, <laughs> but uh, I did use it quite a bit. And... Uh, that that was the time that I was like, either I need to get really good at drawing, and I did like drawing. So I, I, but it was mostly like abstract patterns that I used to play around with, and I, I missed the ability to capture stuff. So I was passing through a national park on the west coast. So the, the mountains on the west coast of India, and I was biking through them, and I, w- I would I was staying at this, I guess, a tourist camp in one of the cheapest tents, and. Uh, I was just walking through the forest and there were, I came across this, um, it's called a wine snake in India. So it's like a very slender and vibrant green and with a really pointy nose. And so I've been very comfortable with snakes. So I just picked it up and I, I really wanted to take pictures. And I took a picture of it with my phone. I was like, this is not getting it. And then I was like, I need to get a camera at some point. And so <laughs> uh, I think that that's a strong memory. And I still probably have that photo somewhere on some hard drive and yeah i think uh that that's what started it it was amazing trip but i wish i had a better camera yeah and then i guess after that i'm not sure what the timeline is but it sounds like after that you spent a lot of time around ladakh is that how you say it there in the mountains uh ladakh it's pretty close uh so um it's it's a northern tip of jammu and kashmir uh, and it borders um, China, and it's a high altitude, very dry desert. So the base altitude is eleven thousand feet, and it goes up to like plateaus at sixteen thousand feet, and then there are mountains above that. And um, so it is probably my favorite place on Earth. And um, so, so I went there as a child with my family, and then once I started my I guess um, during my year off, me and my sister uh, went for, I guess, mountaineering school. And it turned out to be 
uh, a mountaineering school that is primarily used by Army and Air Force people. So there was my sister who was 16 and me who was 18, just uh, doing a lot of rock climbing and then mountaineering uh, in Kashmir and then Ladakh. And so that was my second trip to Ladakh. The first one was as a kid, very young. But it's it's spectacular landscapes. There's very little water there. Uh, colorful mountains, snow-capped peaks, the best skies you've ever seen. And so when I started my undergraduate, I think on my first summer, I just packed up a huge backpack, bought tickets, and flew to Ladakh. And I ended up spending around two months there just walking from village to village, spending time with locals, and they see basically a kid just out of high school and such hospitable people uh, see you hiking with a giant backpack and a tripod and they just invite you into your homes. You stay with them, you help out, you take care of the kids, you share what food you have and they share what they have. And it's, it was an amazing trip. And that's wow. probably when I got into photography. So at this point, I had my mother's old um, Canon Rebel XDI and a kit lens, and I used it continuously. Someone, you said um, you stayed with the locals there. So how did you go about overcoming the language barrier? Oh, it wasn't much of a language barrier. I know Hindi. They kind, they speak Hindi too. Uh, they didn't know much English because I think this was 2013 or 14, and the tourism hadn't really picked up that far north yet. So these were places that visited by tourists very rarely or not at all. And so they did speak Hindi when they came to the big cities, but so I got by with Hindi. So would you say that your your foundation in in photography was rooted in that first in that trip to Ladakh? Uh, I would say so. That that was when I seriously got got into it and that was also when I seriously seriously got into astrophotography it was like these amazing Milky Way basically arching over mountain ranges and I was like I really want to be able to capture this and the pictures weren't too bad it's like so dark conditions you have a tripod you take a 30 second exposure and you're like completely shocked at how good it is and then you're just hooked and you can never stop uh yeah I think We've all had that experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, not all of us, but I mean, I know that was my experience. The first time I captured the Milky Way for the first time, I was like, and it was with a kit lens as well. And I was like, oh, this is, this is pretty awesome. <laughs> yep. So yeah. would you say photography uh, made you into astro, astronomy, uh, astrophysicist, whatever you call it? What do you call yourself? Uh, astrophysicist, astronomer. Astrophysicist. Both work, but okay. not really. So um, both my parents are scientists. So my dad is a material scientist and my mom used to be an astrophysicist herself. So um, as as kids, we used to always go out for like meteor showers. She used to bring home pictures of nebulae and planets. And that's probably where it came from. So it was definitely a very interesting part of my childhood. And then I kind of lost track of it for a while. And then came back sharply when I was under the stars. And I was like, I love this. I'm going to, that, that's where I want to go from here. Kind of along those same lines, how did your fascination with the night sky through photography inspire you to begin studying astrophysics? 
So I guess it was just like you're standing under the Milky Way and you're all by yourself in the middle of nowhere. You're taking pictures, it's freezing cold. And you think about like how interesting stuff is out there. You wonder what's out there and how it came to be. And after I got back from this trip and went back to studying physics as an undergrad, uh, we had to do internships as part of our thing. And I went to, I did an internship at the Raman Research Institute, which is, um, I guess, a physics and astrophysics um, institute in India. And I, that's where I started working on radio astronomy. And so I, I got together with professors and students who are working on this. And the cool bit is there, there, there are many parts of astrophysics or astronomy. There is the theoretical part where people do a lot of calculations and computations. And there's also the instrumentation part where people build instruments and deploy them to really remote regions in the world. And so as part of this internship, I was helping them design an antenna, or I was just mostly tagging along because I had no idea what I was doing at that point. And, and so tagging along and listening to what they had to say. And we went to, again, these remote regions far away from humans, uh, where there's very little radio interference in the sky because that really impedes the ability to detect the radio sky. And we were just testing out this antenna. And I was like, hey, I like making stuff with my hands. Uh, I like going to remote places. And this is a good combination. And you're studying the cosmos as part of this. You're answering how, how did the universe come to be? And that, that's really exciting. And so it was the best of both worlds. And it just went from there. This is totally not a photography question, but it just came to my head. Are you, do you, do you see yourself as religious? Uh, completely not. I'm agnostic or okay. atheist. So okay. uh, both my parents are agnostic atheists too. And generations before that, as is usual with most Indians, grandparents are definitely religious. But I grew up in a very scientific background and never even considered the question of religion. And now that I question it, I, I say, yeah, I don't need it. And if there is something out there until I see it, it doesn't matter. Or, Yeah. The reason I was asking is because you're spending all of this time, you know, studying the stars and, and, you know, like you said, the first light that we can see of the, the genesis of, of what the known universe is. And, and so I, I was just curious if that was at odds at all with your religious background, but it sounds like it's right in line with it. So. Yeah. <laughs> it is interesting. Cool. People ask me whether I believe there's something out there or if they're aliens or other life. I'm like, there definitely is. They're just, it's impossible that they cannot be given the scale of the universe. We have 200 to 400 uh, billion stars in the Milky Way, and we have billions of galaxies in the universe that we can observe. And we're constantly discovering new planets of, around distant stars. So just given the base probability and math, there must be something out there. Whether we encounter it, whether it's smart, whether it matters to us at all is uh, irrelevant. Yeah, I understand. There's a, like, isn't it like the Drake equation or something it, like that? that you that's can actually exactly calculate what I was talking how... about. Maybe this is a good segue because you said you, you liked using your hands a lot. And then I understand that you, you built your own star tracker. And I'm curious, how the heck did you do that? Oh, uh, well, <laughs> 
at, at its core, a star tracker is a very simple thing. Uh, the Earth rotates at one revolution per day. So every 24 hours, you're doing a cycle. And what you need is a platform which rotates at one revolution a day in the opposite direction to cancel out the rotation of the sky, as long as it's aligned with the axis of rotation of the Earth. That is what you do when you polar align your star tracker, that you're aligning. You're saying, what does the Earth rotate around? Let's find that axis and rotate opposite to that so that our camera just follows the stars instead of the stars moving above our foregrounds. And what? so they're, they're probably dating back to the 1920s or 1950s. really old. It's too old to matter. Uh, people came up with this design of a tracker known as a barn door tracker. It's, it's basically two platforms of wood connected by a hinge. And at the bottom platform, they had a screw and they calculated how fast they had to turn the screw to make the top platform move at the right rate to uh, rotate at one revolution a day. And what I essentially did was make it slightly more fancy uh, using acrylic sheets, which were laser cut and made gears and motorized it. And it worked decently. <laughs> yeah. How, how how big is it? How how big is this contraption? Like I'm imagining anything from the size of like a computer keyboard all the way down to like the size of my mouse. Some I have no idea. Okay, so the one I built was um, four inches wide and a foot long, and it packed up. It packed up into a compact thing that was like less than an inch thick. So it would go in my back back, and then I would assemble it, put it onto my tripod, put it onto the ball head of my tripod, align it, and then uh, mount the camera on top, on the top bit of, of the platform. That's, that's so interesting. I think that's probably the time that I, I started following you because I don't know how I came across you, but I mean, I saw one of your pictures that you shot and you mentioned the barn door tracker and the lens that you had used was a vintage... Uh, Canon, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so uh, I definitely uh, did not have a huge budget. And initially, and even to now, a lot of my lenses come from flea markets in Japan, where they cost virtually nothing. And they're like lenses from the 60s, 70s, just film lenses adapted to my mirrorless camera. Actually, the only one I have down here with me is my 400 mm Sigma lens from the 70s. It's a film lens and it has a lot of chromatic aberrations. I could not afford anything else and it has character. That's what I tell myself. <laughs> so it's 400 millimeter on a what? Large format or medium format? So it's more uh, like. No, it's. I don't know, it's, 100? No, it was the 70s. So it's just a. It was a DSLR lens. So it's a full frame. Oh, okay. Full frame 400, 5.6. And it's stuck at 5.6 gotcha. because I cannot change the aperture. <laughs> nice. So that's all you're using right now to make images? Uh, no, I, I, I do have better lenses now. So I have, oh, okay. Uh, that's the only one you brought with you, I see. Th that's the only film lens I brought with me. Because as I've started my PhD journey and started to get paid and uh, can afford lenses, I think everything I own is used except for one lens, but uh, 
I started off with film lenses and then upgraded to uh, Samyang and Rokinon lenses, which are cheap but really excellent. And now I have actually a one Sony lens. Gotcha. Well, cool. So that's amazing. I would I would love to see that homemade Star Tracker in action. <laughs> you should you should sell you should sell those. Ah, <laughs> uh, no, there, there are a lot of instructions online, and people can make them. And I think that's the fun okay. of it: making it and and using it. And, um, and I I don't use it anymore. I've bought a Star Adventurer a tracker because it's way better and it works better, <laughs> like more compact. Still, though, like there's something to be said for saying, "Yeah, you know, yeah, I just made my own Star Tracker. It's cool." Yep. Have you ever had a guest on the show that made their own Star Tracker? No, no. <laughs> but I, but I think he's not the first uh, astrophysicist or astronomer, though. No, for sure. So, man, it's like I teed you up for this, Rajesh. Can you tell us about your work with radio telescopes? And I'd be curious to hear how that's influenced your pursuit of photography and vice versa. Okay. So part of my PhD is working with low frequency radio telescopes in Australia and they are very different from what you would expect a traditional telescope to be so they're not like giant dishes that move around in the sky they're more like a bunch of tiny metal spiders which are a foot high that are laid out over kilometers of desert in western Australia and so if you search the Murchison wide field array let me put it in the chat um, that's that's the telescope I've primarily worked with for the last two and a bit years, and and it's it's an excellent telescope and it's quite unique. So, um, how do I say this? The radio frequencies span a huge spectrum, and the Murchison Wide Field Array is at the low end of the spectrum that we can observe from Earth. So we observe just about the FM band. So. 100 megahertz to 300 megahertz and we're scanning gigantic portions of the night sky uh, and looking for the first luminous sources in the universe so uh, I, I guess i should s- split this up into what i'm currently doing at the south pole and what my research work is so in the history of the universe we have the big bang which is some nebulous kind of thing that we don't really know much about that happened which created our universe and as the universe expanded you had um, this hot soup of plasma and subatomic particles which kind of constantly in action very dense and very hard and the universe kept expanding and as it expanded at a certain point it became cool enough and big enough that protons and electrons could combine into hydrogen and at that point um, light could escape escape the this soup of plasma that we had tell tell me if it's getting too technical no keep going okay so um we call this the epoch of last scattering or the epoch of recombination so last scattering refers to when photons stop scattering over these subatomic particles and just escape in straight lines. And the light that we, we are searching for from the South Pole Telescope, which is where I am currently, is the cosmic microwave background. It is this primordial light from this 
epoch of last scattering, which has kind of been stretched out as the universe expanded. And so the light that we're looking for, for with the South Pole Telescope is the cosmic microwave background, which is all around us all the time. And it's the first light that we can ever see from the Big Bang because it's the earliest light in the universe. And using it, we infer the history before then because we can't really directly see what happened before then. After that, we talk. Okay, yep. Oh, no, I was saying, how does the... How does the telescope help you make those inferences? So uh, there, there are a bunch of things that the telescope does. So uh, we, we've selected a patch of sky in, visible from the South Pole that is least contaminated with the foreground. In this case, the Milky Way, because it's a bright band of really hot stuff, which is very distant, but do the science extremely in the foreground. And so we've selected a patch of sky away from the Milky Way. And we're just scanning back and forth, making images and maps of fluctuations in this cosmic microwave background because it's not a uniform light. So to first order, it looks to be just a constant source of light. But there are small tail fluctuations at one part in 100,000 where you see dips and bumps on this surface on the order of one part in 100,000. And the size of these fluctuations and the angular scale or the spacing between these fluctuations tell us a lot about the history of what came before and also what came after because you can you can these fluctuations tell us or correlate to where matter exists in the universe and so going from this cosmic microwave background or the surface of last scattering the universe had turned from a soup of plasma into hydrogen and helium atoms. And it was dark and cold for a while. In this darkness, gravity existed. And these perturbations I talked about, which are the fluctuations on one part in 100,000, kind of coalesced gradually through gravity. And dense parts became denser. And the less dense parts just evaporated into the denser, denser parts. And as they coalesced and collapsed into each other. They became hotter and hotter. And as they grew hotter, they started to glow. And they formed our first clusters of galaxies, galaxies, stars, and matter that we see today. And this is what the telescope I work with in Western Australia is looking for. What is the history of this coalescence of matter and then the birth of of a new wave of light in the universe? And where do these clusters of galaxies and galaxies and stars come from? And that is what the Murchison Whitefield Array is searching for. I'm curious how all of this technical knowledge of how light works in deep space has translated into your curiosity for capturing it using an instrument that only is able to capture visible light. Yeah, AKA a camera. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's very weird. This, this uh, brings up like a very interesting story. So a couple of weeks ago uh, at the South Pole, we were doing um, what's known as the Event Horizon Telescope. You may have heard of it, um, where telescopes around the world um, come together and observe the same objects in the night. Like they observe black holes, essentially. And in 2019, they formed the first image of the outer regions of a black hole that's ever been observed. 
And so we are, there were 11 telescopes, including the South Pole Telescope, which were observing, pointing at the same direction at the same time and looking at the same thing. And basically, this gives us the ability to synthesize a telescope effectively the diameter of the Earth. And it's the best resolution you can get at these wavelengths. And I, I went off on a tangent, but the, <laughs> the, the details, like while we were doing this, we had downtime with the South Pole Telescope. While it was not doing anything, it wasn't observing in its regular uh, cadence. And we had free time with the telescope. So we pointed it at the moon and took images of the moon it, with a 10-meter giant radio telescope. And we're like, let's see how this looks. And it looked pretty good. We could see a, a crescent. We could see the crescent illuminated side of the moon, and we could see the dark side of the moon. But it was nowhere close to what my DSLR could capture. And so, so I, I went out and took a picture of the moon, and with my 400 mm lens, and stacked it and compare, comparing side by side. One is beautiful and pixelated and you can see that the moon exists and there is a crescent and the other one the optical one is full of craters and details and i did a quick calculation and my camera has 10 times more resolution than this 10 meter radio telescope that i'm working with and and it boils down to the fact that optical wavelengths are so tiny compared to we're looking at hundreds of nanometers for visible light that we were constantly shooting photographs in compared to millimeter wavelengths in which the telescope is observing. And so I guess I didn't answer your question, but uh, it just uh, it just uh, reminded me of this. Like, that's an interesting fact that we're working with a giant telescope and handheld cameras exceed their resolution. Oh, it makes, it makes sense the way you described it. I guess my, my question, though, is more around, like, n- now that you're quote unquote, seeing the night sky through a completely different wavelength of data through your scientific work. I'm curious if that's translated at all into being curious about showcasing the night sky through vis- for through the visible wavelength of light um, in different ways that perhaps other people aren't able to um, perhaps think about. Um, I would say yes and no. Uh... For me, a big part of doing astronomy and astrophysics was because I love the night sky. Uh, and it has kind of doing, studying what's out there has kind of reinforced my love for the night sky and what's out there. And so it's like a feedback loop that each kind of builds on the other. And you're, you go out, you see the auroras, you see the Milky Way, and you're so excited about it. And then that makes you more excited to say, how did those happen? And what's going on? And that has kind of, it, it, it's a very interconnected thing where uh, I, I wouldn't say that it has affected my photography. It's maybe made me more interested in the processing side of things. So like understanding how we do science and how we combine data and do it's very similar to the stacking algorithms that we use when we improve images with, you take a hundred images of the night sky and then you stack it and your signal to noise just shoots up and um, you get much cleaner, much beautiful images. And I guess that's where my science has come into my photography 
being able to understand more deeply what I'm doing when I just chuck a bunch of pictures into software and it spits out something better. And um, in fact, I've, I have i don't know if you have seen uh, some of my planetary stuff where um, I, I shot uh, planets with a nine-inch telescope in Melbourne. And a lot of that actually ended up being quite scientific where I, I ended up writing software to help me edit these images because there wasn't any software available for it. Um, I feel like I haven't answered your question again, uh, <laughs> but uh, I'd say they're very intertwined. Uh, my passion for the night sky and science or astrophysics. And I, I wouldn't say they've per se affected my photography or how I uh, look at the night sky or I can't disentangle how, how it has. That makes sense. So let's bring back our, the, our audiences to something more to the ground. Um, so I'm mean, like right where you are right now. What is the temperature? Oh, wait, I can tell you that right now. Uh, it's currently minus 76 Fahrenheit ambient and minus 108 with wind chill. Okay, that's uh, unfathomable for me. Uh, I haven't experienced anything remotely close, and I'm pretty sure most of the listeners probably have never experienced anything half as cold. Question, how do you operate your camera in such temperatures, and how does the Sony hold up to that? And oh. do you have any kind of special gloves that you use, any kind of special clothing that you wear? How do you go oh. about it? Oh, there's, there's a lot of clothing that we wear when we go out. Um, so down here, operating the South Pole Telescope, it's two of us, so me and my partner, Alan. And one of us has to go out to the telescope every day to check on things. And that's a one-kilometer walk each way. So it's around 10 minutes. And um, it's just a matter of layering. We, we do have special boots. We do have um, layered gloves that we wear. We have down jackets and fleece inside and... Uh, any bit of exposed skin will be frostbite within less than a second. So you have to make sure that you're covered all the time when you go out. Uh, But once you get down how to dress, it's not so bad. You can be out there for hour, two hours easily. The problem is once you get cold, you have to come in because, and then it takes you a while to warm up. Um, About the camera. How does the, yeah, how's the camera respond to that temperature? Uh, so I've mostly been shooting on the original A7S, which I bought third hand like six years ago. That thing dies within less than a minute outside. Uh, just before I came down here, I bought a used A7R4. And the way I use it is I keep it inside my jacket. And then when I'm ready to shoot, I bring it out. Even in those conditions, it dies within like 15 minutes. Um, The screen, the LCD screen at the back of the camera, within 30 seconds outside, it's unusable. It just goes black. And so you can't really uh, use it at all. But the electronic viewfinder is actually pretty good. And that thing stays alive for a lot longer. Um, (laughs) Wow. What I have been doing... 15 whole minutes, huh? (laughs) Yep. What what I've been doing down here and what many people do down here is we make uh, insulated foam boxes, uh, which keep the cameras warm. Um, let me see if I can, just a sec, let me turn on my camera for a sec. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, maybe we should uh, include a picture of this. So something like this, where you have a foam box with your camera inside and stuff like that. And they're either powered remotely by um, like just power banks or you take long cables out and power them through the mains if you're near a building. Um, the old school boxes, I guess, would have just bottles of now, like Nalgene bottles with boiling water inside these foam boxes. And that would keep the ambient temperature warm enough that you could do a time lapse for like eight hours or so. And uh, the boxes I've made currently have uh, heaters inside them. So I have managed to take like a 36 hour time lapse just fine. And then I ran out of memory and the, bo the camera was still alive in there. So there's a lot of like, I guess, playing around, crafting, making boxes and boxes and boxes and figuring out what works best. So you may have invented something that maybe future photographers going to the uh, going to Antarctica would be able to use. Uh, it's been like a thing down here. It just each generation of people at the pole uh, make things slightly better, improve on previous designs. I don't think there's anywhere else. It's it's a very, I guess, niche place to be. There's very few photographers down here and there's nearly nowhere else that gets this cold. So there's no no use for such things anywhere else. A friend did ask me whether I'd take it home. And I was like, no, what would I use it for? I'm just going to leave it here and someone else might use this box later. So I'd love for you to just like tell us what it's really like being a photographer in the South Pole. Um, like, other than what we've already talked about, I'm curious about... How is it different than the other places you've been? Uh, I don't know. It's just, it's very, it's a, definitely an alien world down here. Every, it's like, it's, it's surreal sometimes, like white on white. And like you can have days where the wind is blowing at 30 knots and there's a line of flags out to the telescope. And so every couple of meters and you have to follow the line of flags. And while you're in the middle, you can see two flags ahead, two flags behind you, and it's just white. There's no horizon, and it's 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 just white. Uh, and that's during daytime. And we have just transitioned from our single day into our single night. And so we're still in the twilight bits where there's a glow on the horizon, but it's still dark enough on the other side that auroras have started popping up. And um, it's beautiful. It's so beautiful, man. Um, we got lucky this season that there was quite a bit of wind on certain days and that blows up ice crystals into the air, which creates um, solar halos and sun dogs and, and really insane shows in the summer skies. And Yeah, I, I saw you posted a picture of one of those recently and I was super impressed by it because those are, you know, here where we're at, those are relatively rare occurrences that require like really perfect conditions. And the one yeah. you got was just insane. <laughs> yep. It's like halos within halos and then rainbow arcs and then halos, which encircle the whole horizon, bright spots away. The whole book's written on this. And I was reading one of them and it's like, man, I'm lucky to be down here. Yeah, no doubt. So when you're at the South Pole, how do you know this is the South Pole? Uh, well, you can do it the scientific way with GPS satellites and you, you have a bunch of satellites up above and we actually have a surveyor every year who comes down and 
tells us where exactly the South Pole is because it drifts around 10 meters a year. Actually, it doesn't drift. The pole remains the same, but we are on top of a kilometer and a half of ice. So we're just sitting on ice. Everything is built on ice. And the whole ice sheet is drifting across the continent. So we are moving relative to the pole. And um, so someone tells us exactly where the pole is. The other easy way to know you're at the South Pole is now that the stars are out, you look at the Southern Cross and the two pointers, which is how you determine where the South is anywhere in the Southern Hemisphere. And they point straight above you. And it's so weird seeing that. Yeah, how does that change the way you capture the night sky in terms of the what typically is on the horizon is straight ahead above you? Yeah, it, it's going to be weird. So it isn't dark enough yet to see the Milky Way, but I see Scorpio and a bunch of familiar constellations. So I know where the Milky Way core is going to be. And the weird thing here is the Milky Way core is going to be visible constantly all the time, 24-7. And, and nothing we see on the night sky is going to change. It's going to be the same sky, just at a different position around us as it rotates round and round in circles. Yep. Right, right. Uh, so it does making set up, setting up a tracker very easy. You just make sure it's flat and you're pretty good aligned. And so uh, I'm not sure how my tracker is going to do out in the cold. We shall see. But <laughs> uh, yeah, it's so, exciting. I, mean, I saw your... Sorry, um, I saw the picture that you had shared of the solar eclipse that happened a few months ago. In, if I recall correctly, the sun was in a straight line. Yep, it's, a, it's the same right? as everything here. It just goes parallel to the horizon in circles. Yeah, that's how it is. I'm curious, uh, other than the night sky and really awesome atmospheric effects, what are some other things um, that you've been able to uh, photograph while you've been down there? What what kinds of photography have you been able to do? Well, uh, definitely the atmospheric stuff is the most exciting because that's what changes around here. Um, we did see a couple of really cool things. Uh, sometimes there's, depending on the wind conditions, they blow up snow. And there was this one night where it blew up a thin layer of snow and it was just like right, the wind was coming from where the sun was basically. So there were these glowing hazy layer of snow just or ice crystals that was almost light just flowing on top of the white our white landscape here uh the other cool thing we saw was um a phenomenon known as yuki marimo which is um when ice crystals come together with static and they form these tiny balls and these balls roll across the landscape and it's super bizarre to see and uh, there are a couple of inches across, and it's uh, we only saw it once, or I only saw it once, and it lasted around ten minutes. Um, Do you have any of those images posted of those? No, I'm super bad about posting things. Uh, now that it's getting dark, I'm frantically trying to catch up and post post all my summer images before I get to my night stuff. Uh, I will eventually put put some of them up. Yeah, I was just curious because those 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 sound like a, a dream to photograph. Yeah, and so when you see the auroras over there, do they? Uh, I mean, like, you, is this pretty vivid? Is it very colorful? Right now, since it's still twilight, I'd say, and pretty bright outside. Unless they're really bright, they just look like gray clouds. The surprising thing is that it 
seems to me that they move really fast over here. Like I've taken time lapses of the first auroras down here and the, the interval between my images was two seconds and the auroras changed shape so quickly within two seconds. And the first time I saw auroras was in Norway in 2014. And I, I don't recall them changing so quickly, uh, but maybe just my recollection that's different. Or like day before yesterday, we had this huge arc of auroras which spanned from horizon to horizon. And I was shooting a panorama and I, I got seven images and I wanted to take a second layer of images coming back to where I started and the shapes were completely different and there was no way I would be able to stitch it. And um, so it's right now we're not seeing colors because it's still bright, but it's going to be spectacular soon. You're the scientist, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, aurora is just particles of radiation that are hitting the Earth's atmosphere from ejections from, from the sun, right? So yep. does the speed of those of the ejections impact any of that, do you think? I'm actually not sure. I'm very interested in finding out. So I have... Well, I have the... some more homework to do. Yep, I do. I'm, I, we, we do have science experiments with which are recording the auroras down here. So I... I'm going to figure out what's going on soon because it's it's interesting like and this this is turning out to be a pretty good year for solar activity so we're going up in the solar cycle and um it's crazy that we're seeing such strong auroras already and how how long are you going to be there uh so we just started night we have another 6 months so I'll be there till November October November December it depends on when the flights come and how things turn out it's not fixed yet. Gotcha. But yeah. So for the whole, whole night, some, sunrise, and then early summer. I saw some aerial pictures that you had shared also from uh, some Antarctica. Have you, was it from the flight that you took to get there? Mm, wait, I do not remember what you're talking about. Let me just see. <laughs> I saw some, yeah, I, I remember seeing some aerial shots. Oh, they like are. Like a lake. A frozen lake, yep. Those uh, those were on the flight from the coast of Antarctica, so McMurdo Station to the South Pole, and um, we we flew in on DC three Basler, so planes that are made during the end of World War Two, and uh, so we got lucky that it was a clear day and they could fly pretty low. So these are non compressed um, aircraft, so. You fly low enough that you can breathe, and if you if they go too high, they hand out oxygen canisters. Um, but um, on my flight in, we were pretty low and got like spectacular views of the Transantarctic Mountains, and, like belts of glaciers and crevasses, and just glowing blue, and it was beautiful. Oof. I'm salivating. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question for you, Aman, and this question comes from my daughter, Naina, who um, she, she, once I told her that I'm going to be talking to you, she uh, spent some time uh, looking at your Instagram page. And also she asked this question to ask you. She said uh, that she had, she has watched some documentaries about people who go to the South Pole and the psychological effect of being isolated from society and large groups of people. Do you notice that you feel more withdrawn from interacting with others or are being more introverted? 
she's going to be a psychology major. So I think this question comes from that. I don't think so. So uh, we have 44 people at the South Pole station currently, and that's all they're going to be till flights come in October, November. Um, it's a pretty big station and there's a lot of social activities that go on. So um, we have a gym and we play. There are groups who are really into volleyball, which is a lot of fun. And there's also soccer or football that happens and basketball. And there's constantly activities going on. Um, we have a greenhouse down here, which is a very nice getaway spot to go sit in the humid green room. Makes you feel great. Um, I haven't noticed anything so far because it's a really great gang of people down here. There's always something happening. Uh, it might change as winter progresses. Uh, and We've just lost the sun for the first time, and people say that that's the biggest thing that affects them. But I'm very excited for the night to come. I was going to say that sounds more awesome than my daily life. <laughs> yeah. It is pretty Being ideal. around 40, 43 other like minded human beings at all time. I'm an extrovert, so that sounds awesome. But for an yeah. introvert, that might sound terrifying. <laughs> no, it's, it's pretty great. Yeah. That's a great question. What are some of your favorite moments uh, now that you've been there for a while? What are some, some things that have stood out in your memory? Uh, definitely the solar eclipse is like one of the biggest things. It was uh, quite soon after I got here, less than a month. And um, it, it was amazing to see. So like I, I set up a couple of cameras and then they were just doing their thing. So we we're standing around and watching the eclipse and the light definitely changed. It definitely got perceptibly colder. It got, it felt to get bluer or more like blue in the sky. And so that was amazing. Um, I think, uh, so the sunset here can last weeks. And even once the sun, sun is below the horizon, uh, it can refract over the horizon and you can still see the sun. We didn't get much of that because the weather was pretty bad for most of the sunset. But there was a single night where the sun cleared up and the sky cleared up and we could see the sun as it just went down across the horizon. And um, we saw the green flash. We saw even the blue flash, which is really rare. So it's just um, inversion layers in the atmosphere cause light to refract and then split into a spectrum. And on the top of the sun, you can see... Um, bits of green and on the edges of those you can sometimes see bits of blues and um it's just because the sun like anywhere else this green flash would last a second and here we saw it a couple of times for tens of seconds each time and um yeah that, that was insane to see that's like things of myths almost yeah it's 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 wild too right being at the poles because i mean i'm guessing the sunset from like where it touches the horizon to where it's below the horizon. What is that? Probably like a couple of hours or something. No, that would be days. Oh, days. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, yeah. See, that's wow. It's just hard to wrap your head around, you know? Yeah. You're like, no, dude, it's days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, we missed most of it because it was, we, we had kind of really stormy weather, but it cleared up just enough that, uh, we could see it. We also saw a sun pillar, which is like this beam of light just coming straight up from the sun while it was on the horizon. And I have 
a time-lapse sequence of it where you have this pillar and there's these layers of cloud that are kind of wispy clouds that are moving through this layer of the sun pillar. And it seems like it's almost like the exhaust of a jet engine, which is just spewing light out of it. And um, that, that, was, that was really insane. I bet. Um, what are some other celestial events that you're looking forward to capture while you're down there? Oh, so there's a lunar eclipse coming up, I think May 14th or 15th that is visible from down here. So definitely excited for that. And it's going to be a really long one, like five hours, and it's going to be a full blood moon type deal. Um, tomorrow or day after early morning, we're having the moon rise and it's going to be a 98% moon rising. And hopefully I'm I'm planning to walk as far as away as I can and try and capture it as it goes behind the telescope. Um, I, I did reach out to the people from PhotoPills because I love that app. And they said, sorry, uh, we only walk till minus 80 latitude. We don't go all the way to the poles. <laughs> so I'm just having to, <laughs> to uh, guess and figure stuff out from here. And hopefully the That's weather behaves. That's amazing. Yeah, seeing the moon like juxtaposed with the satellite or the telescope, the telescope would be super, really interesting. Yeah, sorry. I was just looking at your images on your Instagram and yeah, it's cool. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then the auroras are going to be a big thing. So it's like, I think we'll have so many auroras that doing Milky Way photography might not, not be a thing unless I get lucky and we have a bit of dark skies. It just seems like the, there'll always be some auroras going on. Uh, it sounds terrible. Yeah, horrible. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I like to talk to my guests about who do a lot of like traveling, you know, full-time photographers, is about kind of how they handle relationships. And I'm curious, being down there and you only have a pool of 43 other people around you, what is it like in terms of developing and maintaining relationships with, with other people? It's very... Like between people down here, it's very easy or it has been so far. Um, from what I've heard, we had a remarkably, remarkably good crew down here this year and there's been nothing bad so far and it's just looking positive and everyone is super nice um, and I'm really happy about that. Um, things back home are a bit different. Like the satellites move every day, so they... They move four minutes earlier, and with time zones, it's going to start becoming quite difficult to keep in touch with family. So uh, either it'll be super early for me, or it'll be like really late or super early, and it's going to change. It cycles through the year, and so um, that's going to be a bit tough, but it's not too bad. Still keep in touch with family and friends, um, do the occasional call, send them pictures, they just they make me jealous about all the amazing food they have back home. Uh, yep. Yeah, we didn't even talk about food. <laughs> what, yeah. what do you guys got going on down there? <laughs> it's actually pretty good. A uh, uh, wide variety of food, but no fruits. We're, we finished our last fruits um, three weeks ago. So no fruits, no fresh fruits until for the next six months. Um, we do get salads a couple of times a week from the greenhouse which is great um but the food's food's really good and there there's always desserts so it's very tempting and i usually just eat desserts with every meal uh it's great 
So what is the energy source there? Like, how do you get your power? Uh, do you, is, is it from generators or solar? Or what, it's how, a how giant diesel generator. So um, during the summer, we have what's known as spot South Pole Overland Traverse. And these are um, close to 10 to 15 tractors drive across the whole through the Transantarctic Mountains and onto the Antarctic Plateau. And they drive pulling like sacks of fuel. Uh, so we're powered completely by generators. That's a, that's a journey. That's interesting. I would have thought that you'd have utilized solar power, at least in the where it's when it's sunny. Is it just because of the angle of the sun? Yeah, it's it's a very glancing angle, so it's not very efficient. Um, I have asked people why they don't use wind because we have quite a lot of wind down here, and it's probably the batteries, right? (laughs) I think it's more like how quickly things break down in the cold here. They're not designed for it, and we're at an altitude of 10,000 to 11,000 feet, depending on the weather conditions, the barometric altitude, the pressure changes. So very thin atmosphere, which is really not great for wind power. I guess diesel it is then. Uh, (laughs) They they are trying to test out wind to a limited extent for more remote experiments. So as the experiments get further and further out from the South Pole, it's tough to supply them with energy. Uh, So one of the experiments this year is currently, they're not powering their experiment with wind, but they have a test wind turbine down here to see how it does through the winter and what the power generation is to see how feasible it is for the future. Cool. That was a good question, Rajesh. I was actually curious about that myself. Awesome, Aman. Well, last question we have is, who would you recommend our listeners learn more about who's someone who inspires you photographically? So um, there's this guy called Vibhu Grover in India, and he's probably just come out of high school. He bikes around the Himalayas. He he goes around uh, hunting for snow leopards in the mountains, like hunting as in to photograph them, not to hunt them. Uh, He's he's also... um, really active in some of the grassroots level political movements in India. So there were major pharma protests recently. There were uh, large-scale protests against, like, um, there are a lot of protests and they're really important in India. And he's he's been very active and in documenting and being part of these movements. And it's really good to see where someone young... um, is so active when most of the country seems to be heading in a very right wing and bad direction. Um, so nice. he he's uh, someone I really like. Cool. Yeah. That's yeah. a great recommendation and way different than what you're doing for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, this has been super fun. I can't believe we're talking to someone live from the South Pole, where it's negative 80 degrees outside. <laughs> yeah. Probably, it's probably the farthest um, phone call or a Zoom call that we have had. So, <laughs> Right? <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank, thank you so much for carving time out of your busy schedule to, to chat with us. It was, it was really a lot of fun. Oh. It took a while to get this thing together, right? Like, you know, we went back and forth, back and forth for many weeks and to make sure that the satellite is in the right position and to have this 
it took a it took a little bit of planning and being flexible. So thanks for being flexible, Aman. Yeah, very welcome. I love talking with you guys. Well, thanks to Aman and Rajesh for joining me on the podcast today for that really interesting conversation. Even though we got really deep into some of the technical aspects of the science side of what Aman is up to, I think it helps to illustrate that there's some there's many layers to all of the photographers that we have here on the show. And that makes for some interesting images, if you ask me. Next up on the show, we have a conversation with Michael Rubin, who provides us with a really interesting framework through which to discuss photographs that I think helps dispel some of the negative conversations that we can all get into when discussing other photographers' work or our own. Lastly, I want to remind listeners about Nature Photographers Network. It really is a great community of like-minded nature photographers, and the discussions over there are always interesting. There's a fantastic critique section, which I have seen lots of photographers use to improve their photography. So just look for a link in the show notes to get your free trial and discount today. Okay, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us, and listening. See you next week.